TED Audio Collective. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? Summarize with AI in a click. Click, click, click. Writer's block? Release with Canva Magic Write. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. You're growing a business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. The year is 1633. The Black Plague is all over Europe. People are dying by the thousands. You're in a tiny Catholic village nestled deep in the German Alps. You've closed your borders, isolated yourself from the world, but somehow, the sickness got in. And now, your neighbors are dying. Filled with fear, you turn to the only one who you believe can help you, God. And you tell him that if he protects your town from this plague, you will show your commitment and gratitude by putting on a play for him forever. So your little town does what it can and puts on a play about Jesus. And according to legend, the town is spared. No one else dies from the plague. And that town, a very real place in the Bavarian mountains by the name of Oberammergau, kept doing this play about every 10 years for the next 400 years. Along the way, it turned into a massive international spectacle, a performance staged by almost half a town, more than 2,000 actors, half a million spectators from around the world every season, and a village defined by a 400-year-old tradition. But when you carry so much of the past into the present, things, they can get really, really complicated. In this case, so complicated that Hitler will make a brief appearance. I'm Salim Rushamwala, and from TED, this is Far Flung. Shout out to Women Will, a Grow With Google program, for sponsoring today's episode. Today, we are going to the Alpine village of Oberammergau to learn how they're saving their beloved, complicated tradition by changing it. Eins, zwei, drei. Eins, zwei, drei. That's our local producer, Ellie Fee. Hello. For the past few months, she's been reporting in Oberammergau for us. It's a one-hour drive from Munich, where I live. You have to go on the highway first, and then you go through the mountains and over a hill, and uh, you get the feeling of uh, it's a bit far away when you go to Oberammergau. Imagine a kind of Bavarian Disneyland village perched under gorgeous mountains. That's James Shapiro a Shakespeare professor at Columbia who wrote the book on Oberammergau 20 years ago. But every 10 years, uh, when the cicadas drop off the trees, 
I pay attention to what has changed since I wrote the book. He told me the streets of Oberammergau are lined with wood carving shops that make biblical figurines, like Jesus on the cross, the Virgin Mary. And the homes are painted on the outside very often with uh, beautiful images drawn from biblical themes. So it's different than any place you'll ever be. The town's identity is based in this play. Their economy needs it because of the tourism it brings. And the people in this town are into this play on a life-affecting level. When I looked at the demographics and the births and deaths surrounding the Passion Play, old folks lived just long enough to be in their seventh, eighth, or ninth Passion Play before dying. People would hold on. Now, what kind of commitment is that? The actor who plays Judas described the town like this. It's a warm-hearted place where everyone meets on the stage, meets on the theater. <laughs> it's like 2,000 neighbors sharing a stage. If you've ever been to a cast party of a high school production of Midsummer Night's Dream that's run for four or five nights, the kids are in tears. They're friends forever. They're bonded in this powerful way. Well, imagine that running for rehearsals lasting for a year, the excitement, the overwhelming crowds, the money pouring in, the, the fear of a virus that started in China as another plague that could potentially derail this year's passion play. So you're talking about the drama that's on the stage, but there's also the drama of the life of a village that has tied its past as well as its future to this play. So it's, it's like a big family. It's like a big family village. Yeah. Ich spreche in Deutsch. Wunderbar. Wunderbar. Ich, 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 lieb, ich liebe sie. <laughs> <laughs> he was just uh, very glad that he doesn't have to talk in English and uh, he likes me very much this already. Is <laughs> that first voice was Christian Stuckel. That second one was Juan Lucas Cruzaco, who translated for Christian. Christian was one of the many children in Oberammergau who grew up in the play, was kind of raised by it. He started rehearsing for his first performance when he was seven. For me, the theater was more like a playground. I have no memory of my uh, of the second year in school, to be honest with you, because I was so often in the theater. <laughs> and when the director wasn't looking, little Christian would run around backstage, trying on costumes and putting himself in the sets. After practice, he would hang out in his dad's restaurant just to overhear local leaders talk shop about the play. So you could say that already with eight years, I was kind of an expert on the passion plays. But when Christian was 14, he found this little booklet at his grandparents' house and he read it. It was sent, he now thinks, from a Jewish organization and it listed their objections to the performance. I then asked my grandfather, what is anti-Semitism? What is that anti-Jewism? And he didn't want to answer that question. Um, I think that all started when I was 14, 15 years old. On the surface, Oberammergau might come across as warm and pious, but history, that thing gets you every time. So yeah, if you could just tell me 
who you are and what you do. I am Rabbi Noam Marins. I'm a conservative rabbi. In the last 18 years or more, I've been at the American Jewish Committee, AJC, a global Jewish advocacy organization. In his role at the AJC, Noam is part of a long line of rabbis who have studied and had really strong opinions about the Obramagal Passion Play. It's certainly the most documented passion play on the planet. And it's the most documented passion play on the planet from a Jewish perspective as well. Because even though it might seem like, you know, small village, small story. In the story of Christian-Jewish relations, it's a big story. Okay, so we basically have the origin story of Christianity. That's the play itself. Inside the story of the town and... All of that is in this bigger 2,000-year-old story of Christian-Jewish relations. There's a lot of layers, and by the end of this episode, each of these stories will have shifted, each a little less fixed than it first seems. So let's start in the 1600s, when those villagers in Oberammergau first vowed to perform the play. At the time, passion plays were being staged all over Europe. In an age where literacy is not complete, where people are not necessarily reading the Bible, they're learning it through storytelling, and it is quite possible that art was the single greatest promulgator of anti-Semitism. Noam told us that at the time, anti-Semitism in Europe was really widespread. I don't want to be too broad in my generalization, but religions did rely on othering, othering. And Christianity had that problem with Judaism. And in many medieval churches, there was anti-Jewish, anti-Semitic art. And passion plays, they were some of the worst offenders. It was not unheard of that following the viewing of a passion play, there would be an extracurricular activity of violence against the local Jews. Okay, hold up. There might be some of you who, like me, need an intro or a refresher on the basic story of the passion, just to understand what's going on here. So at this point in the story, Jesus has been traveling around, healing the sick, helping the poor, performing miracles, being heralded as the son of God. He arrives in Jerusalem, and from the standpoint of Jewish leaders, he's seen as a threat. So they decide to arrest him. But the guards who are sent to get Jesus aren't sure who he is. And here I'm summarizing a bit. Judas, who is supposed to be one of his most dedicated followers, points him out to the guards with one gentle kiss on the cheek, the Judas kiss. In exchange, Judas receives a little bit of silver. Jesus is brought to the Roman ruler in front of this big crowd. And the Roman ruler, he asks the crowd of people, should Jesus die? And the crowd says yes. They demand that the Roman ruler crucify Jesus. So the Roman guards hang Jesus on the cross where he dies. There's a lot more to it. Resurrection and everything that follows. But that's kind of the main parts of the story. Now, there are a lot of moments that are up for interpretation in this story. Why did Judas betray Jesus? Who exactly is in that crowd? And most important of all, whose fault is it that Jesus died? And in the 1600s, 
The story the Passion Plays and the Christian Church chose to tell was the Jews killed Christ. So the part of the story where the crowd demands that the Roman ruler kill Jesus, in the Oberammergau play, that used to go something like this. Hundreds of people on stage raise their hands and shout, his death be upon us and upon our children. Those people playing the Jews at that moment, inviting collective guilt. So in this telling, all of the Jewish people are responsible for Jesus' death. And they made that clear in more ways than one. They were made to look like villains. Horns. Driven by money. Yeah, their costumes had literal horns. The play was basically Jesus versus the caricatured Jews. And that helped spread the culture of anti-Semitism even further. As time went on, most passion plays disappeared for a ton of different reasons. But Oberammergau, they held on to theirs. And it got really popular. Late 19th century is when it exploded. The rail tracks reached all the way to the village, and it becomes a kind of eighth wonder of the world. It becomes like a pilgrimage for some Christians. Royalty, heads of government, celebrities, they all take that train into Oberammergau. It was so popular that when representatives of the play did a U.S. tour in the 1920s, they stopped by the White House to hang out with Calvin Coolidge. And President Coolidge wrote the director of the play a letter thanking him for, quote, the great influence for good, which you have been to all the world. And then in 1930, Hitler attends. Well, he sees it because it's the greatest Bavarian cultural event every 10 years. In 1934, he shows up again for the 300th anniversary of the play. And he loved it. It's like the worst person you could have love your play. After the performance, he said, it is vital that the passion play be continued at Oberammergau, for never has the menace of Jewry been so convincingly portrayed. When World War II ended, a lot of the world was trying to understand the Holocaust, trying to figure out ways to reckon with what had happened. But in Oberammergau, the people in charge of the play, including the director, who had been an actual registered Nazi, didn't want to change. To them, the play was an unchangeable tradition. It, it was treated like the Torah revealed at Mount Sinai. I'm giving you a Jewish analogy. No, untouchable, impermeable, static. So they were digging in, not changing anything significant about the play. But in 1965, a larger power, the Catholic Church, said it was time for big picture things to change in the relationship between Christians and Jews. They gave an official declaration. The Jewish people could not be held collectively responsible for the death of Jesus. The story that Vatican II declared was the Romans killed Christ, the Jews were there. It's a little complicated. I'm not trying to be as reductive as that, but they had changed the storyline. Now Oberammergau was out of step even with the Catholic Church. And that brought on a wave of criticism. Jewish leaders wrote articles, staged boycotts. One prominent rabbi even called Oberammergau the international capital of religious anti-Semitism. And then a new generation arose in Oberammergau. But it really is about how one person can make a difference. And that person is Christian Stuckel. 
Remember that little boy from earlier who found that booklet and asked his grandfather about anti-Semitism? The one who grew up in the play, hiding in the sets? And for me, the theater was more like a playground. I have no memory of Well, there's one part I left out of that boy's story. Yeah, I tried on a new costume and I put myself in the living pictures that we had there. The living pictures are giant set pieces in the play where actors recreate elaborate still scenes by positioning themselves like a painting on stage. And little Christian snuck into one of those scenes. The director noticed that and told me that if I uh, go on doing this, um, he will slap me in the face. And I didn't stop doing it. So uh, I did get that slap in the face. And then apparently I went home and I said that um, if I become the director of the Passion Place, I will get my revenge. Wow. For this city, the passion play is every possible high school sports championship combined. This eight-year-old kid, he got slapped by the director and told to stop messing around. And so that kid decides, hey, you can't tell me what to do. I'm gonna run this play someday. And so he kept diving deeper and deeper into it. If you remember, his grandfather wouldn't tell him anything about the anti-Semitism in that booklet that he found. But that only made Christian more curious. And well, I started to read a lot about the history and um, digged into books. Uh, I started listening to Jewish music as well. When he was 18, he even visited Jerusalem to soak up Jewish history. And that shifted his perspective on Jesus and the play. I just started noticing things. For example, that um, we already had anti-Semitic effects in the costumes that we had. This whole thing that his town was celebrating, his town's everything, he realized that it wasn't just behind the times. It was really bad for the world, straight up hurting a lot of people. So after that Jerusalem trip, he went all in on his dream to direct. He started putting on Shakespeare plays in town. A journalist in the audience was impressed by his work, connected him to a theater company in Munich. So he went to the big city. And he could have kept going, stayed on that path of big city director, but he didn't. He was still fascinated by that village play. And the best way to describe it is that he understood that his directorship of the Oberammergau Passion Play had the ability to write a new chapter in German Jewish and Christian Jewish relations. I think we call that vision. In 1986, it was time to elect the next director. Christian was 25. The play was getting legitimately criticized by people all over the world. And Christian decides he wants to try and change it now. I would try to get the position as a director of the Passion Place. My friends thought that I was crazy. Uh, how could I do that? Well, my reasoning was that if we didn't take the Passion Place into our own hands, then they would uh, go down. No one would want to participate anymore in that big passion play of 1,500 people. So he had that goal, but how do you even become the director of an entire town's play? The process actually is not too complicated. A local committee elects the director. Here's James Shapiro. You're a villager in Oberammergau, and you get to vote on who's going to direct the play and you're voting between a local dentist to be your director 
and this young kind of uh, long-haired kid whose family had been in the play for generations and was already a director of note. It was actually a surprisingly close vote. I won by a split decision of nine votes for me and eight against me. So I think some of the people in that council knew that if the younger generation didn't take over, it would be the end of the passion play. It had been him versus the traditionalists, and Christian had won. But about half the town was still resistant to change. So Christian started walking a very delicate tightrope, changed the play as much as he could while maintaining support from the town. After all, without the town, he's got no actors. When he took over, one of the rules in this historically Catholic village was that you had to be Catholic to have a speaking part in the play. And as soon as I became the director, I said, we don't want that rule anymore. Christian had this friend who was a Protestant and a great actor, so he cast him in the play. As one of the leading actors, one of the main actors. And when the village priest found out, he started a petition to get Christian removed. Because he said, if you cast a Protestant as one of the main characters, you're breaking with our Catholic traditions. 1,800 people signed that petition. Again, almost half the town was against him. And when he publicly shared some changes he made to that script, he woke up to a message on his door. Go away. If not, then um, <laughs> you know what's coming. And Christian was instructed to come back to the local committee where he was first elected to figure out what to do next. And when I went there, there were 400 people present who were demonstrating there in my favor, so for me. And I think that message was so much more powerful than those signatures. So that's when I knew I had to stay. That's when I noticed this is kind of my duty to do this. And as he started feeling a little more secure, he walked further along that tightrope. And here's where he made a crucial decision. He didn't try to fix the play on his own. He invited some of the play's biggest critics, two rabbis from America, to come to town and engage in a real dialogue about the play. It was my first experience with rabbis. <laughs> now I speak English. <laughs> Sorry. It wasn't the first time rabbis had come to Oberammergau, but Christian engaged with these rabbis on a really deep level. So the rabbis brought 18 points they wanted to discuss, issues that they had with a play. But before Christian could even talk to those rabbis, the Catholic Church told them that of those 18 points... We will only give them nine of those points. Uh, we will hold the other nine back for later. And during the meeting, Christian is sitting there next to them, seeing how frustrated they were getting, knowing that no one is even giving them a chance with their full list. So I told them, okay, come to the theater and we will talk about the other nine points privately. And in Oberammergau, that shocked people again. And my predecessor said that I was selling out the Passion Plays to the Jews. That first play, Christian struggled on all sides. During the, my first passion play, I could change only very little. It was almost a catastrophe in that way. <laughs> but by the 2000 performance, Christian knew how to walk that line a little better. 
One thing that helped him make changes was that he replaced many older actors in the play with young actors, who at the very least weren't around when the play was directed by a Nazi. And the thing that helped him win the respect of the town was Christian started getting recognized for his work on plays outside of Oberammergau. He was aided enormously by his success in the play and by his success beyond the play. So it helps to be a rock star who still wants to live and breathe Oberammergau. He never became too big for Oberammergau. And he is actually bigger than Oberammergau. And when it comes to improving the portrayal of Jews in the 2000 play, he is hugely helped by the relationships he's been building with these rabbis. And in 2010 and now in 2020, I've worked with Rabbi Noah and Marins most of the time. Rabbi Noah Marins. Rabbi Noah Marins, sorry. I was a typical American Jewish leader, a rabbi, who grew up with enormous ambivalence about modern-day Germany. And my first trip to Germany was in October 2000. Nine, directly to Oberammergau, when I went in with my dukes up to carry on the tradition of telling Oberammergau the way it needed to be. Uh, and uh, he won me over, not because we agree on everything, not because he's done everything that we have asked, demanded, whatever verb you want to use, but because I believe he's fully committed to the process. And it's not an easy process. One of the things that came from that process was a scene Christian added toward the beginning of the play. If you remember, in the past, the play basically cast Jews as villains who group up and kill Jesus, a good guy versus bad guy narrative. But to change that portrayal, Rabbi Noam said the key is to make people understand that Jesus was born, lived, taught, and died as a Jew. As Pope Francis says all the time, it's completely irrational or words to that effect for any Christian to be anti-Semitic. It makes no sense. Our roots, he says, are in Judaism. This transformational piece is, in my opinion, the greatest tool in mitigating anti-Semitism. And Christian Stuckel latched onto that more than anything else. And the crescendo of that would be in the 2010 play, where he already has shown Jesus to be very Jewish in previous plays, but then he adds a new scene in which he does the ultimate. That scene, the continued transformation of the play, and what happens when a 400-year-old tradition is rocked by a plague, again, in a moment. Now it's time for an ad I created with our sponsor, Women Will, a Google initiative. 
We are spotlighting women all over the world who are finding new ways of impacting their communities. Northwestern Vietnam is famous for its beautiful landscape, racing rivers and mountains carved into terraces for growing rice and corn. The local people who are living in the mountain, and from there you're walking down to the valley and you can see village. Shu Tan grew up in one of those mountain villages called Sapa. She's part of a Hmong family, an ethnic minority group that is one of nine distinct ethnic groups living in the area. We understand each other very well, but the costume, like the clothes, totally different. The diversity of people, just as much as the magical landscape, is what Shu loves about Sapa, and what she wanted to show visitors when she founded her company that offers trekking and cultural tours, called Sapa Ochao. Ochao is small languages. Thank you. So. Hmm. Yeah, so I would like to say thank you to to our culture, to our people, and I want to let people around the world about our people and connect our people to other people. From the beginning, Shu has been committed to hiring single mothers and young people from different ethnic groups. And I say, well, maybe I'm crazy, but I want to do something to help my community people and I want to be a business person, then I can create job opportunity. And she used some of her profits to pay for school for kids from rural families, kids just like she'd been. And I want the local people able to have better education, a better connection, so or maybe richer, maybe they might have like more food to eat, they have better clothes, you know. We help each other to grow. There are sometimes more than 70 students in the classes studying English and hospitality. Shu even helps some students find scholarships for university. Her ability to help other people depends entirely on how well her own business is doing. And that depends on tourists being able to find her website. But Shu wasn't really sure how to make her website easier to find until she found the Grow With Google program, where she learned more about social media and Google business tools. Shu's business grew, and because Shu is Shu, she wanted to share some of her new online skills with people in her community. So she became a Grow With Google teacher and partnered with Google Vietnam to get training for more than 200 women. The Women Well program show the women raise their voice that they can do if they want to learn, they can able to improve their life. Shu's business has been on pause because of coronavirus, but her digital skills are still coming in handy. These days, she's organizing volunteer teachers for video classes. Local schools are closed, but she's helping keep local kids on track with their education. When women have equal access to technology, anything is possible. Thanks to Women Will, a Grow With Google program, Shu was able to access digital training to grow a business that gives back to her community. Shu and many female business owners like her have been struggling in recent months due to COVID-19. But her work to educate children in Sapa continues. Learn more about her efforts at www.sapaochao.org. That's www.sapa. O-C-H-A-U dot org.
you want to come to a rehearsal? <laughs> I could tell you about. Um... Our local reporter Ellie went to Oberammergau to meet with actor Cengiz Gürer. Yeah, I met Cengiz on a sunny Sunday afternoon right in front of the theater to attend a rehearsal of that new scene that Christian put in. So may I please introduce yourself? Yes, uh, my name is Cengiz, I'm 20 years old and I was born in Garmisch-Partenkirchen and I live in Oberammergau for 20 years now. <laughs> and now we are starting at the theater um, of the play. But before we get to that, I have to point out that Cengiz himself being in the play is a very big deal. He's uh, very young and his parents came from Turkey to Germany during the 60s. So he's the child of Turkish immigrants and he's Muslim. So when Christian gave him a leading part, that made Cengiz the first Muslim with a leading role in the 400-year history of the play. And that role is Judas. This is what Rabbi Noam had to say about that. Unbelievable. A Muslim is playing Judas in the Oberammergau Passion Play. Yeah, that was, that, was, that was our reaction as well. So Ellie meets Cengiz, our Muslim playing Judas, and they head into the Passion Play Theater together. The stage is open air, so you can see uh, the mountains a bit. It's one of the biggest open air theaters in the world. It seats almost 5,000 people. The stage is huge. I think when I was there, there were 300 people on stage, and in the end, there will be maybe 500. Oh. Because the main thing on Sunday in the theater is uh, that Christian kind of organizes the masses. He's, he's standing on his table and he's just moving big bunches of people from one direction to the other and saying things like, uh, one meter to the left and you look in this direction. So this was it, and I was hanging around with Cengiz. Since they're all amateur actors and do so many performances, every leading role has two actors. So while the other Judas was on stage, Cengiz sat next to Ellie in the audience and leaned over. And uh, yeah, he explained to me what they're gonna rehearse. In this scene, we, we're acting uh, the, the Mark place. It's like a... Um, Turkish market <laughs> on open places where people can buy everything and Jesus will come there and he's gonna say um, get away from here take your stuff and uh, go home and it's gonna be an interesting scene here it's a very important scene for Jesus and the uh, apostles it's an early scene Jesus has just arrived in Jerusalem and he kind of has to shoo some merchants out of a temple but Christian says the most important fact here is that he, after the merchants have left, he starts praying because it is a place of praying. So Jesus leads everyone on stage in a prayer. And a decision Christian has to make is how should Jesus pray? Uh, one of my more Catholic colleagues said, well, um, he should pray the Holy Father then. And I said, no, that's not quite right. You know, even in the New Testament, we have the translation of Shema Israel. So maybe we should have Jesus pray the Shema Israel. And I then said it is also important that Jesus opens the Torah as well. So this is a scene where hundreds of villagers of Oberammergau 
are singing the quintessential Jewish prayer. What is Christian doing? He's holding the roll, the holy roll, where the Shema is written on. And everyone has to sing now the Shema with the whole people and uh, apostles, everyone. It's like a message to the people. And Eli gives Cengiz a little recorder that he puts in his breast pocket when he goes on stage to sing this prayer. So this is a recording of him on stage with like 300 other people. townspeople singing the most important Jewish prayer in the former Nazi stronghold, in the place and in the vehicle that Hitler blessed. This is a rejection of all of that. And the fact that a Muslim is part of the singing of the Shema Yisrael in Ober Amrigal is another indication of the transformational change that has happened there. And then Cengiz comes back into the audience to sit with Eli while they watch the other Judas rehearse. And Ellie leans over and asks Cengiz, what do you think this prayer represents? Like, I think the point of Shema is that every people is harmonizing with each other and singing with each other because every human is the same human. Are you Jewish? Are you Muslim? It doesn't matter. I would say this is the anthem of the Passion Place. And also the anthem of Obama Yes. Yeah, I think you can put it to the anthem of Obama Girl. Everyone knows the Shema. So you just had a Muslim man tell you that a Jewish prayer is the anthem of Oberammergau. <laughs> yeah. That's a lot. <laughs> Welcome to a modern world <laughs> in the last corner of Bavaria. <laughs> of course, I have to ask Christian about this. Is this Jewish prayer the theme song of Oberammergau? So um, I would say that it isn't the theme song yet. It's not the hymn yet. Maybe he's exaggerating a bit, uh, that young boy. But I think it's on its way there, you know. Uh, at the beginning, the people were quite skeptical and asked, why do we have to pray in Hebrew now? And what was really interesting is that traditionally on the last day of the Passion Place, we sing a last song all together, which is Great God, uh, we pray to you. But in 2010, everybody 
wished to sing Shema Israel instead. And that was uh, really something for me. So I think that Shema Israel has the potential to become the theme song, the hymn of Obamago. Okay, so me, a dude named Salim, kind of has to follow up with something here. Of all the roles in this 2,000-person play, why did Cengiz, first Muslim ever in the play, end up as Judas? The representative Jew, Judas, who betrayed Jesus. Like, he's a symbol of evil traitorness. And I don't know what I expected. Do you mind if I take off my jacket? Yeah, take uh, a minute, get comfortable, man. Okay, perfect, guys. <laughs> Let's go. This guy was one of the cheeriest people I've ever talked to. It felt like I was chatting with one of my most fun cousins. So I asked him, what's it like to play Judas? It's not bad. It's it's the opposite. Yeah. Like, it's it's the best what can happen to me. Like, Were you worried that it would change how people treat you at all or no? No, 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 no. Like I said, people are, uh, are treating me in the different way. Like, yeah. they're treating me so good. <laughs> so, yeah, they're treating him so well because he has a really prestigious role in this little town. I'm still confused. How does he feel about having been given the role of the bad guy? But then he does something I didn't expect. I can, like, feel a little bit of something what Judas has felt. Like, it's a normal human thing. He starts trying to get me to sympathize with Judas. Judas thought, ah, okay, they want to help Jesus. Like, they betrayed Judas as well. Yeah. It was, a, it, it was a classical, normal mistake by Judas. And he's being completely sincere. Judas, in this play, is not that bad of a guy. Because another thing Christian has changed for the 2020 performance is that he has rewritten the role of Judas to be more relatable. Our intention is to um, show Judas as a good person, too at the Passion Place at 2020. That's Christian's goal. Wow. And the guy who can flip Judas to being not so bad a guy might be the guy who can flip Oberammergau. And since the beginning of this project, I've been really curious. How does Christian see himself? On the one hand, you could say he's super traditional, deeply religious, getting a whole village to really engage with the story of Jesus. On the other hand, He's super untraditional because he's so willing to change a massive tradition. So what does the word tradition even mean to him? Uh, you have quite the difficult questions to answer. Um, so uh, I would say that we have an almost 400 year old tradition, you know, with this passion play. and. Every time someone wanted to change something about the play, um, the majority of people said, changing this is a crime. Yeah, remember that huge fuss about making changes to the play? Turns out it's actually not historically accurate. In reality, Christian and Shapiro both told me this play had already been rewritten many times in the past. And in my honest opinion, I think the changes we make to the play are the only tradition we have. And, you know, questioning all those other rules, all these traditions we have, to question them, to see if they still 
fit the context of our present, to bring the play and the uh, staging to today, to our present times. I think that's the tradition we have. So Christian says change is built into this tradition. But how do you decide what stays and what goes without losing what matters? I'm actually quite sympathetic towards this challenge because I understand tradition transmitted from one generation to another. That's not something that's hard for a rabbi to understand. Rabbi Noam has a clear guide for when it's time to change. To me, it's very simple. If your tradition involves hate, you got to find a way to change. And ancient traditions, Judaism, Christianity, Islam, they have hate in their traditions. No ancient tradition is impervious to that. So it's only a question of what you do with that hate over time. And that's why what Christianity did is so significant because the denigration of Jews in Judaism was too essential to Christian identity. It almost needed to be relieved of that burden. And I've heard Christian leaders describe it that way. So when you relieve a people of a burden of hate and demonization, you are assuring the future of that tradition because you're purging it of its most threatening pieces. I think that that's the power of the Oberammergau Passion Play in the context of Christian-Jewish relations. It's a symbol of everything that was wrong, and it represents the possibility of what is better, but that the task is not yet complete. So let me tell you another story. The year is 2020. Once again, a sickness is threatening your town. As the director of the Passion Play, you have spent years in preparation for the upcoming performance, perfecting your art for the masses, who will come in droves to see your village perform. But the sickness can't be stopped. And so you make an unthinkable choice. You postpone your play. And I had to announce it myself, which was really, really hard for me. I teared up a bit uh, while announcing it. Two years from now, you'll re-energize those 2,000 actors, stage the play, continue your centuries-old tradition. At least, you hope you will. As to how this play will evolve next, in this moment of massive international upheaval, you can't say yet, but you know it's gonna be different. Okay, thanks for riding with us on the first five episodes of Far Flung with me, Salim Rashamwala. We're gonna take a break for a while and work on our next five episodes, which is gonna take some time. Until then, keep an eye out for a few little surprises in the feed. 
Far Flung is produced by Jesse Baker and Eric Newsom of Magnificent Noise for Ted. This episode was produced by Kim Naderfane Petersa, along with Sabrina Farhi, Huete Gitana, Elise Blennerhassett, Angela Chang, and Michelle Quint, and guidance from Roxanne Highlash and Colin Helms. Our local producer was Elizabeth Fee. Special thanks to Frederick Mayet and Francisca Zanke for their Oberammergau expertise. Our fact checkers are Christian Aparta and Nicole Bodie. Ad stories are produced by Transmitter Media. This episode was mixed and sound designed by Kristen Muller. Our executive producer is Eric Newsom. Special thanks to our sponsor, Women Will, a Grow With Google program. I'm Salim Reshamwala. <laughs>